You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our second patron mini-episode compilation. Woohoo! We did one of these before, but if you missed that last one, or if you forgot, here's the background. One of the rewards that our patrons can get for subscribing on Patreon at a particularly high level... Which we appreciate. ...is a mini-episode discussion of a topic of their choosing. We have a great time doing it. We think it's a really fun way to show our appreciation for our higher level patrons. And once we've gotten a certain amount of them in the bag, we like to put them together into a compilation for the audience at large to get to enjoy. We did one of these before with five patron mini episodes. Here is part two, batch two, with another five. Yeah, finally the sequel. The one you've been waiting for. These are not heavily researched discussions like our main series episodes. It's mainly just you name a type of animal you like, and we'll chit-chat about it mostly off the top of our heads for a little bit. So if you like hearing us talk about cool animals and stuff, this is the thing to listen to. In this compilation, you will hear us discuss the following topics. Crinoids for Lewis. The dinosaur Acrocanthosaurus for Will. Not this Will, a different Will. Yeah, but it's still real cool. Uh, A slight deviation from our normal pattern, we do discuss the Hadean Eon for Jordan. We discuss fainting goats for Mike with a special guest to help us out. And finally, you'll hear us talk about scabies for Andreas. We had a lot of fun recording these. We hope you will have a lot of fun listening to them. And hey, if you really like this kind of thing and you've been thinking about maybe subscribing to us on Patreon, here's one more reason to think about it. I personally think it's very well worth the subscription. (laughs) You would. I do. do. (laughs) Well, without any further ado, let's just turn it over to us from the past, talking about a bunch of other stuff. Enjoy. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Lewis, and welcome to your very own Patreon mini-episode. Hey, Lewis. Since you are a top-tier patron, you get the reward of your very own mini-episode discussion on a topic of your choice, your favorite animal slash group of animals, and you chose crinoids. Yeah. A very interesting choice. Crinoids are one of those interesting groups of animals that I am very familiar with and at the same time don't know very much about. Yes, absolutely. It's, I'm, I have a passing familiarity because they're so prominent among fossils. They're very prominent. They are a classic example of fossils, certainly in our part of the world, where we have a lot of, here, where we are now in Tennessee, but even, you know, I grew up in New York, and New York State has a lot of Paleozoic uh, formations. So crinoids are not only a common find for fossil hunters, but a common teaching tool. Yes. Because they're so common in Paleozoic sediments. Yeah, and like we had tons of it material even just at the aquarium. Mm -hmm. If we ever did want to bring out a, hey, want to see some Florida slash ocean fossils? Like, here's some chunks of crinoid. Yeah, they're not quite trilobites Mm -hmm. as, as far as 
fame goes, but they're this it's a pretty famous group of fossil invertebrates. And really I think that's probably just because they don't have a face. Right. So <laughs> they don't have eyes that you yeah. can uh, become endeared by. <laughs> so we should uh, specify Lewis already knows this, but crinoids are echinoderms stalked oftentimes with feathery fronds up at the top for sifting things out of the sediment. Uh, bait, sea lilies. Yes. And one of those interesting groups of animals like brachiopods that are around today, but more famous as fossils. Yeah. I, I remember when I was seeing something and, you know, I think it was like some documentary and they just had like a little scene of a sea lily. I think it was one of the swimming ones that. Yeah. The, the flappy ones. Yeah. That, that flutters through the uh, alternating their fronds. And they mentioned that these were the same thing as crinoids. I was like, but what? <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I learned about crinoids as fossils first. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And p- because of my history with geology and paleontology, I also, that means that crinoids are one of the top invertebrate fossils that I'm able to identify with relative ease. Yeah. Well, because you get the little, uh, oh boy, they have a name. The slabs of column. Yeah, the, the quote unquote stalk. Yeah, the each the the pieces of the stock those do have a name and I can't think of it at the moment. <laughs> Crinoid joints, Crinoid pieces, <laughs> but the little little Reese's pieces they're like Smarties. Yes, uh, or if you live in the UK, whatever Smarties are called in the UK, uh, they're not called Smarties. No, uh, Smarties means something different. But here in America, Smarties are the little disc shaped candies. Yeah, chocolate, the chalky tablets. The chocolate, that's it. Chalky tablets, which funnily enough is often how crinoids are preserved as little chalky tablets. (laughs) I distinctly remember the, not the day specifically, but the feeling I had when I first heard that crinoids can walk. Yeah. That's apparently a thing that multiple species are known to do is to walk along the ocean floor, either with their sort of root quote-unquote roots their anchorage system yeah their feet but i think there are some that drag themselves with their head really across the that might be true maybe i'm making that up but they move yeah across the sea floor well they're such famously immobile animals you know we called them sea lilies yeah we named them after plants yeah so like the whole thing of how we've pictured them is immobile just sitting there sedentary but they're animals. Yeah. And even other immobile animals like uh, sea, uh, like sea anemones mm-hmm. and stuff like that still can move yeah. and still can reposition themselves, just not at the speed that we're typically used to. And nine times out of ten when you see them, they're not doing anything. Right. Other than just existing and filtering. Well, they get the best of both worlds. They mm-hmm. get to do the plant thing where you really only stay in one spot gathering what you need from the environment without having to expend lots of energy being active. But if a problem happens, you can get up and move. Yep. You know, this is a, what Allie likes to say when she's on the podcast, plants can't move to a new environment when the going gets tough. Crinoids can. Mm-hmm. They can just move. And I was uh, doing a little bit of just skimming online uh, in preparation to remind myself of what I know about crinoids. And uh, there was something that I saw that the fastest moving crinoids have been known to move multiple inches per second. All right. Which is pretty fast for a tree. No, yeah, that's 
That's something that if you leave it there for an afternoon, you could lose it. Oh, yeah, easily. <laughs> Absolutely. I think they were moving like hundreds of feet per hour or something, which, yeah, that's that's booking it. Well, and that's, uh, I feel like that happens with lots of slow animals, is you get things like, you know, uh, sea stars and uh, uh, sea urchins, other inkinoderms, mm-hmm. but also, you know, snails and stuff that are notable for being very slow moving. You know, we know they move. You can actually see them moving, but they're we think of them as so slow that I feel like it's very common that we just be like, all right, well, you're not going to get anywhere. Like, right. You can move from one end of your little tide pool to the other, but that you're not going to go places. Oh, be it, but if you don't stop moving, you can actually get quite far moving slowly. Yes. Like it, you, until you spend time, you know, a set of time watching these animals, you realize, yeah, they actually are quite active mm-hmm. and they can get around. It just is so slow that it's easy to uh, brush it aside. And so I like the idea of the, the of a sea lily garden just rearranging itself. That's so cool. <laughs> One thing that I do wonder about crinoids, and I don't know uh, off the top of my head, but a lot of other sedentary seafloor animals end up being hosts to other animals. Yeah. Like corals and sponges get stuff growing on them. I assume sea lilies get encrusters and parasites that hang out. Uh, either on the stalk or hitch a ride as they move or are up by the fronds to parasitize and take food out of there. Wasn't there, I feel like that one of our newses talked about. I think that was coral. Was it a coral, not a crinoid? I think so. I couldn't remember. I remember there being something that was growing off of uh, the the stalky part of something else. Yeah. Uh, Well, maybe that was a crinoid. Was it a coral on a crinoid? That might be what that's, it was. I think that's that, what it was. Maybe that that's coral what had settled on the crinoid stalk. Yeah, yeah. Which brings me to the question I was going to ask is if we see that in fossils. But if that's what we're remembering correctly, the whole point of that news is that it is something we saw in fossils observed for the first time in living animals. Yes. And I think that I think you're right. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Have to, we'll have to see if we can track that one down. Uh, well, yeah, I, like I don't know enough about crinoids today to know are there crinoid fish, you know, like, are there fish that hang around them and yeah, I don't know, pick stuff off of them or steal food from them? You know, is there shrimp that, like, so often you get, just because the ocean's full of those kind of relationships. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's got to be stuff like that going on, but I don't, I'm not aware of any of them. Yeah. I bet there has been a ton of research on crinoids in the fossil record. Again, one of those interesting groups of animals where we probably know more about them as fossils than we know about the living versions, yeah. like brachiopods. Like, there are many more species of brachiopods in the fossil record that we've identified than there are today. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of an odd, unusual feature that what we have today is a vestige, a remnant of this great diversity of the past. But so often when we talk about that, it is like, yeah, up until a couple million years ago, they were incredibly successful and diverse and they are they have been dwindling but with crinoids it's like yeah 300 million years ago (laughs) they were extremely diverse and extremely widespread they're still around today they're just not what they used to be yeah and they've been not what they used to be for hundreds of millions of years yeah the ocean's gotten more crowded (laughs) and they are still hanging on they're just not dominating yeah uh which yeah is a it's a weird 
so often we're used to either fossil groups disappearing or just having fossil members of stuff today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get stuff like elephants where you had a wider diversity, right? You know, than today, but it's it's not quite to the degree of you know crinoids today versus when they're their heyday. Right, elephants are not most famous from the past. Exactly, uh, and so yeah, it's it's an odd feature. It's it makes me wonder how different. Uh, you know, what what is the diversity of crinoids today like? Mm-hmm. Are there any crinoids today doing something we haven't yet found in the fossil record? I think I remember reading somewhere that f- the uh, the swimming sea lilies, the sort of ones that flap through the water mm-hmm. column, are either less common in the past or just not known very well. Yeah, from the fossil record. Again, off the top of my head, I don't remember if that's I don't remember where I read that, so that might not be entirely yeah. true. And that could be a a, a preservation bias right if you're anchored to the ground you're already where you need to be to be fossilized and you're going to get fossilized alongside the corals and sponges of the reef but if you're floating around right that's not that's not where fossilization doesn't happen in the water column so (laughs) there's lots of stuff that can happen to you between there and getting down and settling yeah but man the, the swimming crinoids are so cool my favorite thing about them is is the alteration, you know, that they're switching between alternating arms. So it's just this, like, conveyor belt of swimming motion. Yeah, it's not flapping all at once like bird wings. Or, or like even. a jellyfish. Right, yeah, yeah, it's just this undulation all around the side. It's constantly moving up and down. <laughs> it kind of looks like... um like the those fractal arts like screensaver type yes computer arts <laughs> yes it does that just are folding in on themselves and constantly changing it's they just are doing that through the water yeah and it's mesmerizing i love it oh man as of this recording we have not done an episode on crinoids or on echinoderm or any echinoderms uh for that matter it is a glaring omission. Yeah, we, we talked about echinoderms on the episode of Spotlight where we had Dr. Chris Ma join us because yes. he is an echinoderm expert. But other than that, we haven't had any echinoderm specific episodes. Boy, sorry, echinoderms. Well, eventually, someday, <laughs> I will be very excited to learn more about crinoids and other echinoderms because yeah. they're really cool animals. They really are. So thanks, Lewis, for giving us this opportunity to talk a little bit about crinoids. Yeah. That clearly, that we a group of animals we are fascinated by and someday we'll be excited to learn more about. Oh, yeah. There's lots that we need to learn and I look forward to it. A crinoids episode would be like a trilobites episode where it's like, yeah, I've heard of these things, but it'll be fun to really go in depth and learn more about them. Well, it's it's one of those groups where like if someone else said, what's a crinoid? I could describe what they look like mm-hmm. and what they do and a couple of the varieties. And they're like, all right, cool. How big do they get? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, what? I have no idea. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> do Why I would like, I know that? Do I look like some crinoid expert? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, like I, I know of them and I know them like they're in my mind mm-hmm. just passingly. But I, I don't actually know the extents, which is yeah. interesting. So someday... We will learn more. Yeah. Cool. Well, again, thanks, Lewis, for the suggestion. And thanks, uh, of course, for supporting us. Thank you so much for that. As you do on Patreon. We appreciate it. We've had fun in this short mini discussion. And we hope you enjoyed it as well. 
We hope you'll continue to support us and keep listening. And someday we'll talk more about crinoids and echinoderms on the podcast. For sure. Yeah. Bye for now. Bye, Lewis. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Will. Hello, David. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Hi, Will. <laughs> no, the Will. other one. Hi, Will. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. We appreciate it. In fact, we appreciate it so much. We're giving you a patron mini episode. Yeah, thank you. So this is your own episode about your topic that you told us to talk about, which was Acrocanthosaurus. Good topic. Your favorite dinosaur as you indicated, <laughs> which is a good choice. It's a, it's a good choice. It's a good dinosaur. I've always been a big fan. I mean, obviously, theropod dinosaurs. Yep. Very cool. I've always been a big fan of Carcharodontosaurs. They, uh, they are really neat. And I think that for me, I, I feel like it goes back to the fact that Carcharodontosaurus and its group were the first dinosaurs that I, as a kid, learned... That there were predatory dinosaurs as big as Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. I think Carcharodontosaurus was my first intro to that. Probably. Uh, if it wasn't that one, Giganotosaurus for mm-hmm. me. But yeah, th- that group, I think, was the same for me where I went, oh, it's not just Tyrannosaurus and friends. Yeah. And they were divvied up into different parts of the world at different times, mm-hmm. which I think is very cool that for the most part... You don't get a lot of overlap between Tyrannosaurs and Carcharodontosaurs. Well, I also I also like that you don't get the overlap, but also they also are notably different versions of a big theropod. Yeah, like you you the face of Carcharodontosaurids is not a Tyrannosaur face. No, very different. And that's that's cool. That's that's a different group coming at being a big predator from a different angle, but getting just about as big. Yeah, and doing a different thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we say the skull is not the same as the skull of Tyrannosaurus. Well, yeah, the skull of Tyrannosaurus is built to do very particular things. Yeah. So they're even living differently. It's like Spinosaurus, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yet another one, up to a similar size and obviously doing something different. Yeah. Acroacanthosaurus is fun. Because it bucks the trend of Carcharodontosaurus being mostly southern. Yes. Acrocanthosaurus is known abundantly from North America. Right here right. in our it's hometown. Our, our own little uh, Carcharodontosaurus. Well, it's not little, but our <laughs> own personal Carcharodontosaur. <laughs> in fact, I forget how big Acrocanthosaurus is. Oh, I, I, I looked stuff up, and according to Wikipedia, uh, they can get up to... Like, I think this was, like, one of the largest specimens. 11 and a half meters, or 38 feet in length, mm-hmm. and an estimated weight of 6.2 metric, or 6.8 short tons. Yeah. So, to clarify what I meant, I always forget how big it is. Mm-hmm. Not in that I forgot how big it is, although good to yeah. have the stats. But what I meant was, I, it always slips my mind that it's huge. Well, I had I, that... I think of it as a smaller one. I, for me, it's it's... Not so much that I think of it as a smaller one, but when I was looking up notes to make sure I, I, I had all my info, uh, you know, that I was thinking of the correct dinosaur and all that <laughs> good stuff, and it had a line of one of the largest predatory dinosaurs, I, I had to go, really? Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. 
It's, yeah, you were one of the biggest ever that we know of, which is awesome. But yeah, it doesn't get advertised that way often, which well, is it, weird. Overshadowed by its couple of possibly slightly larger cousins. Yes, and the ones that have have just have a history of being the more faint. Like T Rex is right. the historical big theropod. Spinosaurus is the flashy, weird, the big, the the croc-shaped one. Yeah, the one that's the one that is the alternate build, like to the extreme. Like, doesn't look like any of the others at all. So yeah, I think it just gets pushed this, and it's not Giganotosaurus, which is the one that gets all the press. Got the catchy name. Mm -hmm. Acrocanthosaurus, though, is since it was later early Cretaceous North America. T-Rex before T-Rex. Mm-hmm. It was the T-Rex-sized theropod here in North America before Tyrannosaurus really had their heyday, which is of a very... And on top of that, right, it's got the lineage of Carcharodontosaurus. Mm-hmm. It lived in the place that Tyrannosaurus later did, but it's got all those vertebral spines. Yeah! Kind of reminiscent of Spinosaurus. Which is a fun melange of giant theropod traits. Yeah, it's. I feel like it sometimes gets lumped in as the buddy to Giganotosaurus or Cacarodontosaurus, or you know, like that's at least how I've seen it. Where they, it's it's mentioned in a list with those other names, right? But it is notable. It is unique. Yeah, it stands out. It's it is a weird enough one to you really can point at some unique things in it. And it makes me think about, we talked in the Spinosaurus episode uh, back in 42 about how among Spinosaurids, it's not just the one with the giant sail. A lot of them had elevated vertebrae, uh, Mm -hmm. the vertebral spines that were probably more of a ridge or hump along the back. And Acrocanthosaurus seems to be doing a very similar thing. It does look really sim- like like a, a Suchomimus kind of look. It does have a yeah. very similar, not quite a ridiculous fan, but they're they're not normal spines. They are notably elevated. It brings up a similar questions of w- what exactly were you doing with that? Yeah, was it just to make yourself look a little bigger? Was there some uh, I think I've seen it referred to as muscle attachment. I saw a couple of mentions, and evidently there's maybe signs on the spines of muscle attachment. Mm-hmm. So I saw one uh, mention that described it as being like a bison's spines. Gotcha. And for like supporting the neck and the head. So I wonder if you're supporting like the whole back and the legs or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Your whole torso is just extra muscular along the back or is it like um you know because like the the spines on a bison are to hold up its big heavy head Mm -hmm. and be able to maneuver that giant face i wonder if there's a reason for them to have extra muscle going down the back to the neck and the head like are you doing something when you bite things that needs more (laughs) muscle behind you not so much that you bite harder but like i'm biting and then i'm thrashing you or something right is it like um you know when you, you lay your arm down, and if you move your fingers in a certain way, you can feel yep. the motion all the way up by your elbow? Yeah, like there's one spot where you can you can even like see the muscles, yep. and it looks like Luke's robot hand testing itself. Yes. Like, is that, is like our Acrocanthosaurus, when it bit something, you could feel it 
in its hips. Yeah, if you were riding it, you'd feel it tense. <laughs> the whole back. Yeah, like I wonder if that if this is an indication it was doing something that needed some extra muscle on the back. You know, yeah. either like with the when they fought each other, were they doing something that needed that muscle to do it? I don't know. Yeah. Or even just living a particularly strenuous. You know, did you do a lot of running? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. or did you? I, I've seen um suggestions that they lived alongside lots of big prey yep, yep, yep. options like sauropods where you getting into particularly difficult struggles with your prey either way this is a i mean clearly a powerful animal oh yes regardless it's huge it's massive i did see one thing that said uh you know it could have been for display or for muscle it could also be for something like fat storage That's uh true. and so you could have something like a big squishy backed you know, oh, yeah. Would would you be able to tell the health of an Acrocanthosaurus by how swollen or thin its back was? Is that how camels work? <laughs> you know, well, it's like the the tail of a a, a gecko. Oh, if it yeah. gets all shriveled, they are, they need to eat more, and then when it's all fat, they're well fed. I wonder how it would be to ride if it had a big squishy back. Would it be like a cushion on the back, or mm-hmm. would it be like an uncomfortable, like sitting on a railing? Yeah. Yep. There's just it's like when you find the edge of the frame of the couch <laughs> through the right. cushion. You can feel those vertebrae. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was reminded in preparing for this discussion that my friend Mike Demick uh, from Adelphi published, I think he's published a few times on Acrocanthosaurus. Oh, really? But he published a paper several years ago uh, examining growth rates and growth patterns in Acrocanthosaurus. Cool. Uh, and I looked for it and it's, uh, I, I found, you know, read over the abstract to remind myself and this one's several years old there may be newer ones but yeah he published a study that found bits of a juvenile acrocanthosaurus not fully grown and was able to look at the bone histology to get a sense of how they grew and and their growth rate and how long it took them to grow and they had concluded that they grew real fast Mm -hmm. similar growth rates as that we see in things like tyrannosaurs makes sense which suggests and they say that in the paper that this is a lineage that seems to have achieved gigantism by accelerating growth rates yeah, in a similar way to tyrannosaurs yes that it's it's not that you extended your life and you grow longer or that you extended the growing part of mm-hmm. your life it's not that no okay we just grow for 60 years instead of normal it's that you have evolved to grow fast. Yeah, grow like crazy. Like a bird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that paper suggested that it takes them 20 to 30 years to achieve maturity. Which is... So reach full size. Yeah. Which is also fairly similar to tyrannosaurs and humans Which even. always baffles me a little bit when something like that comes up and they're like, oh yeah, no, this 40 foot long animal reached adult size and you know was done growing by about 20 years old so if you were born at the same time as an acrocanthosaurus you both would basically be done growing and fully mature at the same time and that seems like that shouldn't like it's (laughs) why does it scale that's weird well and i've seen estimates i've seen this for tyrannosaurus that suggestion and i don't know if the growth rate looks similar for acrocanthosaurus but for tyrannosaurs, at least, they grow like we do, where it's slow in the early years and then fast through the teenage years and then it slows down again as mm-hmm. they become an adult, which means that it's not even like 
growing to six or seven tons over the course of 20 years. No. <laughs> it, most of it's happening in the middle. They have a growth spurt like we do, which for an animal like Acrocanthosaurus, assuming that it grew a very similar way, I've seen uh, articles and papers say like, yeah, this is the number of pounds they have to put on per week. Yep. To achieve that for years. Which I remember how much I ate when I was going through puberty. Right. As a, as a young man. My family still. Yep. <laughs> like I have an aunt who still comments every time I get together for la- for the holidays. And she'll be like, well, hide all the food. David's here. And I'm like, very, it's funny. I love it. It's great. But no, I no. don't. I can't do no. what I used to do. <laughs> 30s now. Not the yeah, same. It doesn't work the same way. Uh, but back then, yeah. I can't even, like, I'm picturing from a, a, like, a zookeeper, like, a person, (laughs) an acrocanthosaurus in human care with keepers who are having to maintain it when it hits puberty. Yeah. Like, what do you even do? (laughs) What do you, what would you say you need to take care of this acrocanthosaurus? Well, we're gonna need a zoo. Yep, no, a, a living facility. No, no. Yes. A zoo. Most of the zoo. For food. (laughs) (laughs) So this, it's, they're one of those extreme regions of life. Mm -hmm. Like, Acrocanthosaurus isn't alone, but it represents one of the most extreme things life on Earth has ever done. A elephant-sized land predator. Yes. And I I feel like it's, as we mentioned, it, it often gets overshadowed by its technically slightly bigger you know rivals Mm -hmm. and a lot of times when the big predators come up and people are like you know spinosaurus is bigger than t-rex all right by a little yeah and when you hear bigger you're almost always referring to length right it's usually well it's the same way that uh uh, you know argentinosaurus Mm -hmm. is by length bigger than a blue whale yeah but is absolutely not bigger than a blue whale But the other reason that it bugs me is when people are like, you know, here's the ranking for the biggest predators. But if they were alive and you were looking at them, you wouldn't be able to tell. The way that I like to put it is that they're all in the same. If they were wrestlers, they'd all be in the same class. Well, it's and I think the best example is (laughs) like go to a zoo with alligators and ask people to tell you how long they are. (laughs) No one can tell and no one gets it right. And no one knows how to tell because you're not practiced in estimating the size of that animal. Well, there's also the important point to be made that we're going on the lengths of the specimens we've found. Yes. And they're all, you know, once you're up to 40 feet long, what's an extra five feet here or there? It's not statistically significantly bigger. It's just slightly bigger. So, yeah. So, Acrocanthosaurus is really... Our North America's Carcharodontosaur, mm-hmm. and like I said, T Rex before T Rex, the giant predator, for all intents and purposes, probably doing very similar things. Well, and the other thing that fascinates me about this group and therefore Acrocanthosaurus is like, when you look at T Rex teeth, they're different than a croc's teeth, but they've got that very spike, you know, very rounded robust spike for holding and crushing right banana teeth banana teeth so i in my mind i immediately can be like yeah i can picture how you're biting stuff and mm-hmm. what that would probably have looked like yeah. crunch but then the cacarodontids have these varanid yeah. slicing knife teeth so are you like 
when you are hunting something and you get a bite out of it, is it like when a Komodo does it and there's just a bite and then just blood just because you've nicked an artery because you just <laughs> slice into them? Like, what is it like to see something that big take a cutting bite out of something? Well, I remember hearing at one point, uh, I think this was for Allosaurus, the suggestion that certain dinosaurs that had weaker jaws, you know, T-Rex, mm-hmm. of course, is a crushing machine, a crushing machine. I'm trying to think of the construction equipment. Oh, uh, that, yeah, yeah. That, like the jaws of life thing. The, the one that they use to take apart houses by just crushing it. Yes. Yep. That. But with others uh, that don't quite have that crushing bite, I've seen it suggested that some may have used a hatchet technique. <laughs> I think it was Allosaurus, uh, because of the specifics of its jaws, of just swinging the skull down to embed your mouth onto it. Yeah. And then pull meat off. So, and, and at that scale, they could have been doing all sorts of different things. What does a six-ton Komodo dragon function like? Exactly. Well, and it makes me wonder if they were functioning like Komodo dragons. Like, if you were hunting stuff like sauropods, do you need to kill it in, in you know, quickly like a lion kills its prey? Or can you come up, bite it on the thigh, and then walk off, but you took, you know, five pounds of flesh mm-hmm. in that one bite, so now it's slowly bleeding out. And so as it walks along, and this Acrocanthosaurus is tailing it for a while while other acrocanthosaurus one by one show up (laughs) to follow it like you'd you'd assume that a predator that big has to be hunting differently than Mm -hmm. small like you know great whites small sharks don't hunt like great whites hunt sort of thing like yeah because it would be ridiculous for a bonnet head shark to be breaching right (laughs) it's because that's adorable but if your prey is scaling in size, if your prey is still five times your weight, then why not hunt like a, a Komodo dragon and a bison Yeah, or buffalo? I've also seen it suggested places, and I don't know how much support this has, that sauropods may have been utilized uh, for predatory grazing. Oh, yeah, yes. Which is the suggestion that a predator could walk up to a sauropod take several pounds of flesh off of it and then just leave. All right, see you next week. Yeah, I got my snack and I'm done. And the <laughs> I've got my pound of flesh. Will heal, because I think that that's something we see in the oceans. That yeah. there are, I think small sharks do that to whales. I mean, yeah, that's what the cookie cutter does. That's true. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. cookie cutter is, is parasitic, but it doesn't attach. It just comes, nibbles, and leaves. Now, and I know I, that there are also fish that'll do that to other fish, like nibble fins. Mm-hmm. Just come over. I'm just taking a little bite. Yes, it's your living tissue, but yep. sorry, I'm not here to kill you. Now, I don't know if that's a viable strategy for a six-ton predator. And I also don't, don't know how quickly a sauropod would heal. Like, right. would they heal fast enough for that to actually be a viable long-term strategy? So I don't know what the likelihood of that is, mm-hmm. but there's no end to the discussion of what does an elephant-sized predator do to get its food and to live its life? pray we never find out (laughs) (laughs) well this has been a lovely little discussion thank you so much will for making this request not you (laughs) i was was gonna say you're you're very welcome i try and thank you for your support of us on patreon we greatly appreciate it we really do 
We hope you'll continue to support us, listen to us, and send us episode requests in the future. No doubt there are more theropods for us to talk about in the main series episodes, so perhaps someday we will uh, return to the topic of Acrocanthosaurus moving forward. Yes, it'll, it'll get a number. May, oh yes, Ooh, <laughs> it'll go on the list in my little brain Rolodex. <laughs> Thank you so much. We will see you next time on the next thing we record. Bye, Will. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Jordan. Today, we're going to talk about that thing you asked us to talk about. Yeah! (laughs) Thank you for your support on Patreon. As promised, as you requested, we're going to give you a little mini-episode on the Hadean Eon of Earth history. We're breaking a little bit from our normal trend of talking about specific animals uh, to talk about a time period. And notably, a time period without animals. Yes, that is, that's kind of what <laughs> makes it the Hadean. <laughs> yeah, well, the Hadean is such a weird time period in our history because it's really defined by all the things we don't know about it. Yes, that's exactly the way I was thinking about it. Like, the Hadean is fascinating to talk about because it's formative. It is the first half a billion years or so of earth history it is how all of this got started and every discussion we have about the hadian starts with we think mm-hmm. dot 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 because we just have almost nothing well it's it it's a great example of we know that it must have happened like we know that there has to have been a hadian period based on the age of everything else floating around us in this area of space right like the timing, we know that that half a billion years had to have happened. We know what things must have occurred. Oceans forming, the crust cooling, yep, the, the moon. moon form. Yeah, we know these things had to have happened. So, like, we know roughly how long it has to be. We know a lot of the big things that had to happen in it. Mm-hmm. And then that's about, like, we don't know exactly how. We have the timing on some things and or ideas of timing, or at least had to have happened by this time because we have evidence that it had already happened right. by this time. But yeah, we it's all of those things. We know it had to have happened. We just don't know how specifically. Yeah, the Hadean is a strange time. Among the reasons why it's strange is that a lot of what we know about the Hadean comes from our understanding of other planets. Yes. Like we look at what happened on other parts of the, the universe to infer what happened here on our planet. Now, I understand, I think, that the Hadean was originally introduced to basically cover the time before we had evidence. Yes. Originally, the, the idea was, yeah, when we started, the Earth was molten, and there wasn't, well, largely molten, and there wasn't a lot of stable material on the planet. rocks yet. There wasn't (laughs) continents or anything. So there isn't evidence for that stuff. And at some point, it became possible to preserve rocks. Mm -hmm. And that's where our evidence starts. And before that is the Hadean. Yes. Which is both not 
quite true anymore. No, we've found more stuff than that it, that would imply. We have some mineral remains and some rock remains that are in that uh, older than we used to have. Mm-hmm. The oldest minerals on Earth are back to 4.4 billion years old. Yeah, those zircons. Yeah, which is practically the age of the Earth. Yes. And I believe now there is sort of a unofficial cutoff that the Hadean is generally about until 4 billion years ago. Yeah. That that's about where it becomes the Archean. Mm-hmm. But even to this day, I'm pretty sure the official geological position on the Hadean is that it is an informal... That's what I read as well. Uh, uh, eon. Yeah. Because we define geologic periods by geologic evidence. Yeah, it's it's not... It's that we don't just define a, a geologic period or eon or epoch, a span of time to break things up evenly. We define it because there's something definitive about it that right. during this time, we see these features or during this time, we see these species. This extinction event marks the end of it. If we find out that extinction event happened earlier or later, it might shift when we put the ending of that period or eon. Right. So, yeah, there's there's bookends. There's a beginning and end markers for these time periods. The Hadean kind of it's kind of doesn't have that the beginning is when earth started yep (laughs) and then the end is less easy to determine because we don't have what happened before it right we don't have any evidence of an extinction event because there wasn't anything to go extinct nope we don't have enough evidence to say that some major geologic shift happened because we just don't have a lot of rocks nope it is a a period of Earth's history that, as I saw uh, one site online refer to it, as defined by absence. Yes. It's like darkness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the absence of evidence for our planet's history. It makes me think of the those chemical evidences for the, the first beginnings of life, where we're not finding chemicals from life. And we're not finding, like, traces of life on the rock or anything like that. It's that the chemical makeup in this sediment that would have been ocean is weird in a way that only makes sense if there was something living using up or producing some of these chemicals in this amount. Right. But we don't have the the trace fossil of life. What we have is something that's wrong for what it should be in an inorganic system that only makes sense if the puzzle piece of life is put into it. Right. That's what we have here is we have all this missing data that we know what should go there. And then that's, that's it. Well, there's even some stuff from back then, you know, it gets weird. Like you were saying, we, we figure out that there was life by evidence of life's impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. Back to the Hadean, I'm pretty sure that some of those zircon grains back then have been used in a similar way to say the structure of these grains should only have been able to be possible in the presence of water. Exactly. So there were probably oceans. Yeah, that was the example I thought of where it's, we are pretty sure oceans had formed by this point. How long they had been oceans, we can't say. Yeah. probably by this point but i don't know 
which makes the Hadean one of those time periods that is very exciting to think about what's going to happen in the future. Because we keep every now and then finding rocks and minerals that date back to this time. Absolutely. And presumably we will keep finding more. And who knows what every new rock we find from the Hadean has the potential to tell us something completely new. Completely something we did not know at all. About that sequence in the earliest timeline of our planet. Uh, well, formation of oceans. Yeah. The formation of our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The moon becoming the moon. Well, and that's something else is like, not only will we likely continue to find the these rare and and priceless pieces of evidence but also our techniques are going to adjust and change the technology we're using is going you know like with uh, uh, a lot of the discoveries for coloration in dinosaurs and stuff mm-hmm. a lot of those were not we finally found a fossil that let us do it it's hey we have a machine now right that we can do this with Someone invented a new machine (laughs) and now we can like that could happen with Zircon of, hey, I developed a device now that can tell us this about Zircon. Bring all the Zircon we've already found, (laughs) put it through the machine, and now we can suddenly learn something new. And as you mentioned, looking out to other things as we learn more about the moon and -hmm. stuff like that, like the next you know human mission to the moon, what what then could we discover with modern technology? on an astronaut mission and go, Oh, here's the timeline of when earth was hit by something and formed the moon. Right. We found it here on the moon where it hasn't been, been done away with by geological processes. Yeah. Like, well, and I'm also excited at the prospect. So during the Hadean is when we also see the period called late heavy bombardment, which is such a cool term, <laughs> which meant, yeah, there was a bunch of meteorites. We were just getting pelted all the time. Which we have found on this very planet we live on, meteorites from Mars. Yes. That got blasted off of Mars and landed on here. I want to know if we look hard enough on places Mm -hmm. like Mars, can we find Hadean Eon rocks that were uh, donated. Ejected. (laughs) Over that were exported. (laughs) And now Mars has them. What a cool potential for us to learn about our own planet by going to other planets well because this is also one of the rare instances and and it's not that like we can't learn anything about earth by looking at other planets today Mm -hmm. you know there's lots we can learn but when it comes to like paleontology and earth history most of it is comparing ancient ecosystems and habitats and life to modern ecosystems habitats and life and we can't use other planets because none of them have that. So they can't really teach us much about that. This is one of the rare instances where this was the birth of Earth around the same time the rest of the solar system was being born. So the Hadean is the one time where all info is on even playing grounds with the rest of our solar system effectively. <laughs> so yeah, looking out to the our neighbors can be could potentially be crucial for understanding that time. And the Hadean also, you know, it, like I said, formative years, mm-hmm. uh, formative for the atmosphere, for oceans, for continents, but also life shows up at some point mm-hmm. as of now in the Archean. But the more we find, the more information we have for 
when did Earth become habitable? Exactly. And it wouldn't surprise me, you know, we every now and then we'll find more minerals and rocks from the Hadean, which we didn't think we would find at one mm-hmm. point. And our estimate for the origins of life has now and then been pushed back. Yeah, crept ever further back. So there's also the potential that somewhere in this loosely defined Hadean eon is evidence for early life on Earth. Yeah. It, I also wonder, because when we talked about origins of life in the, the main episode, you know, we discussed that the steps to going from inorganic to organic is not a flip of a switch. There's a whole bunch of stages in there where it could be replicating proteins or, you know, active amino acids mm-hmm. that aren't quite what you would call a cell, but also aren't quite what you would call inanimate. So, like, could that stuff have been going on throughout the Hadean, and it took that long for it to finally pop into being life or something? Like, who knows how much of the prep work for the origin of life might have been happening before we have solid evidence? I The Hadean is fun because our picture of it keeps changing. Mm-hmm. There, you, you look up the Hadean online and you get lots of images of just lava world yep. with fire coming out of the, the sky. Elemental plane of fire. Yep. But we know that it's more complicated than that. And that there were early hints of continents and oceans. And that our picture of the Hadean is going to continue to change and update and it, give us a sense of what the planet was actually like more so than just this general sense of the planet in chaos of formation so this is one of those categories where we know so little and that makes it super exciting oh yeah to you know for the next 50 years to go by and see what is left to mm-hmm. learn about it well and something else i really like because as it's come up i i'm a bit of a space nerd a little bit and Things like the Hubble telescope and other space searching projects that are just cataloging the sky, I really love because as our technology improves and our imaging gets better and all that good stuff, it's only a matter of time until we find a solar system and go, oh, hey, this seems to be a solar system in formation. Yeah, the the Hadean Eon is happening on these exoplanets. Yeah, we won't be able to watch it happen because it's going to take half a billion years if our time scale is anything to go by Mm -hmm. but over time we may be able to go Ooh, this one has an accretion disk you know it's nothing but the dust right (laughs) this one has a baby planet we want to find enough exoplanets to make a flip book exactly like so this is a time period in earth's history where we might be able to find the most information by looking as far away from earth as we can (laughs) which I can't describe how happy that concept makes me. That's so fascinating and amazing. It's a very... There's just so much waiting to be learned. Jordan, this has been a real fun discussion. Thank you for suggesting it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your support on Patreon. We hope Thank you, you very much. continue to support us and listen to us and send us your questions and comments and requests. We haven't talked about the Hadean very much on the podcast. We touched on it a bit in episode 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, we touched on it a bit in our trip through time yep, way yep. back in the day. 
but perhaps we will return to it someday if it's something more people want us to talk more about. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we've got to talk about the formation of Earth in more detail at some point. Yeah. Just what, what it entailed, because there's a lot of steps in there that I don't think it thought about often, so it'd be worth discussing. Lots of potential, but until next time, thank you one more time, and we'll see you later. See you around. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Mike. And welcome to your very own Patreon mini episode. Woo! Just for you, as thanks for being a patron of the highest caliber. And in this case, the highest level of how much money you give us. And as thanks, we are going to do a mini episode just for you on the group of animals of your choosing. And you chose, as you know, fainting goats. Mm -hmm. Which is a very interesting topic uh, that Will and I know practically nothing about. That they are a thing. They sure are a thing, and boy, are they silly and cute and whatever. But we have met many a fainting goat because, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but our friend Laura, who was our guest in episode 84 and also one of our live chat guests, Mm -hmm. raises and breeds fainting goats, has a whole farm full of fainting goats. So when we saw your request, we thought, well, we're just going to have to ask Laura all our questions. Yep. Hi, Laura. Hi, guys. (laughs) Welcome to this Patreon mini episode. Glad to be here. We're very excited for you to teach us things about fainting goats. (laughs) We're ready. Well, good, because, yeah, talking about them is pretty much my favorite thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, you you currently, uh, your farm currently has over 70 of them. Yes. In in, in the wake of this breeding season. (laughs) Yes. uh, Reached over 70 uh, three days ago, actually. The birth of the last kids. Well done. Thank you. Uh, I imagine them like World War Z uh, climbing up the side of the barn, <laughs> stacking on top of each other. It's like that or the tidal wave in The Shining. They come Ooh. running out of the barn. That's fantastic. <laughs> Ooh, terrifying. <laughs> so the whole shtick with feigning goats is that these are domestic goats mm-hmm. that when they are startled or whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, seize up and often fall over. Yes. And, I th- and we've had people comment before, uh, listeners comment about this, and I think the number one question that everybody has is, but why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, why? Why did we do this? Yeah. Well, so the, I guess to explain the mechanism of the faint would be step number one. Mm-hmm. So it's a genetic condition called myotonia congenita, and it is a condition, and it can be found in sharpays, in humans, in mice. It's not a goat thing specifically mammals mammal thing definitely Uh, but it's super rare because naturally it gets selected out (laughs) fainting goats would not live in the wild yeah the first time you faint on the savanna it's not it's not really a high selective pressure the end of that lineage (laughs) Uh, so what happens is is it's not necessarily so i describe it as an involuntary contraction of the muscles but actually what it is is it is an inability to relax the muscle so your goat, you know, gets startled and it goes blah and it runs and then it can't unlock its muscles and it just plops over. Oh, so it yeah. starts, it, it gets all uh, uh, seized up, like it, 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 it <gasps> clenches all the muscles and everything and then just can't go back. Then it's stuck. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So it's not that it's just the muscles are contracted. Once they contract, they can't let it go. Exactly. Weird. Which is harder to explain when you're being inundated by like 10 or 12 little baby goats crawling on you. Yes. Yeah. So is is it like 
Is this what happens to people when we have seizures? That it's like muscles lock up and you can't unclench? It's a similar mechanism, but it's different. Okay. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure yeah. how. But it's a much, very similar concept. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's not just scared. So the, the same thing happens. Anything that elevates the heart rate. So if they get excited. Feeding time. Pe- I say people. Goats always <laughs> faint at feeding time. I have several that just plop right over. And so the difference is the little babies will just fall over. They have no idea what's going on. The first couple faints really scare them, and it kind of breaks your heart just a little <laughs> bit because they're so scared. They don't yeah. know what's happening. Uh, but they get used to it really quickly because, of course, it's, this it's is, unavoidable. This, this is your life. Yeah, you know, this, this is just, how you are. This is just my life now. Uh, but the adults, they're like, oh, crap, this again. <laughs> and they start running, and they'll put their legs out. I'm gesturing, not that you can see this, Mike, but I'm gesturing. <laughs> uh, and they'll put their legs out to the side and balance themselves because they know to, they know that it's going to happen, and they can learn to prevent it. Right, like walking over ice. Yeah, you know, spread exactly. your legs out so you yep. don't fall over. You know, exactly. So they can brace for the faint. Yeah, they know it's coming. They're like, oh, geez. Ah, I mean, yeah. that makes sense that they would learn that. That just, mm-hmm. I'd never thought about that. Yeah. So that means you can run up to them and push them over if you're real helpful. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. So I was going to make a joke about, so them getting excited and, I, and my brain went, oh, it's like the Incredible Hulk. Any sort of excitement. Specifically, the Incredible Hulk from the first Incredible Hulk movie back in 2008 in the MCU. Mm-hmm. And then I thought there's that scene in the Incredible Hulk where he they, they almost have sex, but he can't because he says, I can't get too excited. Do they seize up during, like, <laughs> the excitement of mating? The very young bucks their first time usually will. And sometimes the does their their first time. The first time, you usually get them. Yep. Yeah. After that, they're usually huh. pretty good. But yeah, people ask about... Like planes flying overhead because we live right next to the airport. Anything that's got a slow build to it, they're fine. Right. But like fireworks will get them. Surprises. Yeah. 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 yeah surprises well, and excitement. Like I, because uh, we visited your goats the yeah. other day and I was holding one of the babies and went to put it down. <laughs> that's and yeah, right. just the act of going transitioning from my hands <laughs> to the ground was enough for them to seize up just for a second. Yep. Or even even jumping will do it sometimes. Yeah. So we had one that jumped up onto the trailer and then fell over. <laughs> which is, wow. Which does make them the easiest to contain goat. Because you see all these YouTube videos of goats on the roof and goats climbing up and doing all this parkour. Fainting goats don't do any of that. Yeah. Because they can't. They'll just yeah. fall over. Yeah, well, if you got too high and then seized up. It wasn't a good time. Yeah. Huh. I guess they can't, like try to escape particularly well. Nope. If you need... They're not going to run away from you. Nope. <laughs> if you need them to stop. No, they are so stop. easy to catch. <laughs> I imagine a, a, a... I guess not a sheep dog. A goat dog would have a real easy time with fainting goats. Oh, yeah. Well, the trick is you'd need a dog that could then pick them up and bring them to you. <laughs> Drag <laughs> it back. Uh, get some herding Great Danes. <laughs> Thoughts for the future. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I guess coming back to the original question. Yes. Why... Who did this and why? Oh, okay. So, yes. It, that is, this is not a natural thing. This, of course, would not survive in the wild. So, the breed was not necessarily discovered, but the, it's attributed to the first four goats were three does and a buck that belonged apocryphally. There is no written evidence to prove any of this, but the, the accepted knowledge is this gentleman named John Tinsley in the 1880s, I think it was, came down maybe from Nova Scotia, question mark? And he came down to Murfreesboro, it's in the Giles County, Lawrenceburg area of south central Tennessee. It's like directly south of Nashville, that little area. Hmm. And hung out for a year, sold his weird fainting goats to some guy, 
The name Dr. Newberry, Mayberry gets thrown around a lot. I can't find any information on him. And there's also a legislator, Mr. Good, who I can't find any information about him either. These this all sound like code names. Right? <laughs> names have been changed to protect. Are we playing Clue? <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, it was Colonel Mustard in the library with the goat. <laughs> So then this, either this Dr. Mayberry or this Mr. Good, the legislator, then proceeded to breed the goats. And they were like, oh, well, the kids do it too. It's not just these four goats. It's even the kids. So it's a genetic thing. Therefore, it's a new breed. And so it was originally just, you know, decided that it was a breed in, I think, 1930. And then it fell mostly out of favor. You know, they're just, it was just this tiny little handful of goats in Podunk, Tennessee that no one knew anything about until the 1980s. And people went, whoa, these are hilarious. So <laughs> the the reason that people continue to breed these goats the, the way back when, and again, this is apocryphal, there's no proof for this, is that you would keep your goats, you keep these weird goats as, there's no nice way to say it, bait. Yes, mm-hmm. that's what I always you heard. Have your, you have your valuable food stock, your sheep, your cows, your pigs, your whatnot. You've got your valuable animals and then you've got this weird cheap goat you put it in the flock, your herd, whatever you have, coyote pops out of the woods, your fainting goat becomes your quote-unquote sacrificial lamb. And then uh, your valuable yeah. animals are kept safe. Uh, everybody runs away except for the And animal. the goat's like, wait, me too, wait, oh no. That, that we have bred to not be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's what I had always heard. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how much, like, so if, if that was just the solution that uh, or the answer that made sense, mm-hmm. or if there was actual, because again, there is no written documentation of any of the history of fainting goats. Any the yeah. first record of them in history, like in written history, is on Christmas Day of 1929. There's a thing called the Naples Report, and it's this one guy saying, "Here, there's this weird legislature, legis- legislator in Tennessee with some weird goats," and he said it was the way he described it. Was they fall down in an epileptic fit reminiscent of strychnine poisoning? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just picturing the interviewer being like, okay, I guess that's the way we're going to describe it. All right, and you feed these two animals in the wild. You know, it's funny because that is that it is simultaneously ingenious and horrifying. Yeah. If that's the case. Well, it's, yeah. it's like those birds that have, you know, the, the three babies and one is always the one they decide not to feed you yeah. know yeah. yeah it's that thing of like oh no we're going to have two kids but we're gonna hatch three i don't want you to explain more <laughs> no, no i'm yeah that's that's enough <laughs> so i you're saying that the origin uh putatively is so so the story goes is in this very state that we are in yes in tennessee yes that's one of, cool one of the very few goat breeds uh, native to the u.s and the only one native to tennessee so it's a it's a great it's so they're called Landrace breeds, and they're also heritage breeds, and this and that. The Landrace breed just means that it's not, like, there are not these strict rules that the goats have to fit into. Not like with dog breeds, where mm-hmm. there's, you know, the ear must be four centimeters and the blah, blah, blah. Goats, the fainting goats can come in any color, most sizes, different kinds of hair, and, you know, there's lots of variations. As long as they faint, they're a fainting goat. Is this something that, like, I, I don't know how, how much crossbreeding with goats there is this something you could breed into other this variety a whole thing this whole big, there's a whole big crossbreeding thing so myotonia is actually recessive so when you cross a fainting goat with a different kind of goat they hardly ever faint right rarely but the thing about the involuntary muscle contraction or lack of relaxation mm-hmm. you want to call it a contraction because it's easier um muscle contractions means that they have a higher meat to bone ratio than any other breed of goat and they tend to be super heavily muscled 
So a lot of people will breed them with like your classic meat breeds, your Kikos, your Borgos, your big, heavy production breeds to put more meat on them without making them quote unquote inconvenient because they faint. Huh. Weird. Yeah. I've sold a couple of bucks to a guy trying to just put some meat in his herd. Like I just need more muscle on my kids. And I'm like, here's your bucks. That's great. Huh. So I guess that was my next question was going to be, and I, I'm sure I've asked you this before. Mm-hmm. What do you, what are they bred for? Are they bred for milk? Are they bred for meat? Uh, I, presumably it is no longer the <laughs> accepted custom to breed them as sacrificial uh, cannon fodder for the wildlife. I've never heard of anybody doing that in real life. Yeah. Okay, Re- cool. Recently, which but, is good. It also seems like a huge gamble. Like, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you gotta hope the coyote's hankering goat. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it, it has to faint when the coyote shows up. The coyote has to go for it. Mm-hmm. There has to only be one predator no. <laughs> there if, to hunt it. Yeah. Like, it seems like there's lots of ways that the fainting goat could just happen to make it through. Yeah. yeah. Which, again, is why you probably realistically have five or six of mm-hmm. them. Hoping that right. one of them's gonna faint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, today, they're mostly bred for pets. Okay. Um, they're a great novelty. You see all the videos on YouTube about them. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people breed them. They keep. Uh, they, they are bred for meat. So there's a whole there's a whole offshoot, like a not a subspecies, but like a sub breed of fainting goat, and they're called. It's actually trademarked the Tennessee meat goat, and they're raised exclusively in Texas by this one lady in her ranch. And she took this she took these fainting goats down in the 1950s and brought them down to Texas in the hill country. And she brought them up to be these big honking meatballs of goats uh, that still faint. So she breeds hers for meat. A lot of people will cross them with your more quickly growing meat breeds. Uh, fainting goats grow really, really slowly. They are not profitable as a purebred meat goat. Hmm. So you cross them with a boar, with a Kiko goat that get full size in you know, seven, eight months. Hmm. You just add a little bit of muscle on them, they grow fast. Anyway, um, you can milk them. I don't. I don't have that kind of time in my life. Because my goodness, milking is such a such an obligation. It's it's a commitment. Well, you have sense. to keep up with it, right? Yeah, it's just like cows. twice a day, no matter what. Yeah, mm. on your deathbed, got a funeral, got a wedding. Mm, no, milk the goat. Yeah. Ugh. Huh. So do do fainting goats have any particular outside of what we've talked about? Mm. Do they have any particular other weird things about them? Obviously, they're famous for fainting, but are they like are there diseases that they're more common? more likely to get, or or are there other weird things about them? The opposite is true, actually. Because they have, because they've been bred in America for 200 years, Mm -hmm. a little bit more, however that works, math, (laughs) around 200 years, they are more adapted for our climate. And because they are from Tennessee, means they handle the humidity, they handle the worms, they handle the high temperatures better than they would, like, the African boar goats. They get shipped over here from that. Like, we are still importing purebred boar goats from Africa to reply, resupply the blood lines. Hmm. And they are used to dry and arid environment. Mm-hmm. And you plunk them down in Illinois, and they're like, nope, worms, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the fainting goats, they tend to be more parasite-resistant and generally disease-resistant and more hardy for this area. Like the, the closest thing we have to a native goat. Yeah, so they do great. They're super low maintenance as far as goats go, which means compared to other livestock, they're still high maintenance, but they're not as bad as some of the other types of goats. Huh. Yeah, they're super, huh. and they, they can live anywhere. You know, they're as far out. There's breeders in Colorado and Maine and Florida. I mean, they're everywhere. Wow. But there's still not many of them. There's, it's said that there's about 10,000 in the world. So in the Livestock Conservancy, 
which is a national group that monitors endangered livestock breeds, the fainting goat is in recovering. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were, up until like three years ago, they were in the watch category. We're like, "Mm, keeping an eye on them. Uh, But now they're in recovering because with the advent of YouTube and everything, they're popular now. More people are aware of them. Although they still aren't super aware. So if you Google a fainting goat, one of the first things that comes up is, are fainting goats real? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they are. Makes sense. Yep. Yeah, a lot of people have never heard of them, which is weird because they're such a huge part of my life. I forget that other people have never even heard of them. Yeah. Well, they're ridiculous. Uh, completely. It's it sounds like a, an internet concept, you yeah. know, that someone put yeah. you know, made a video of like a goat who fainted. Right. Mm-hmm. My goat. Yeah. I have this one weird goat yeah. that right. that does this thing. Mm-hmm. Something I used to always wonder with them, uh, mostly because of things like the hognose snakes that play dead and possums that play dead but like at least everything i've ever heard about at least definitely the hognose snake it's actually not good for them like it's very stressful on their body mm-hmm. when they play dead and when they like if they you know fake throw up or whatnot you know like it can be very stressful to their anatomy if it happens too often and i used to always wonder that about fainting goats mm-hmm. is like because it looks like a seizure right which i know can stress the human body as it happens like you know, if, if your heart's tensing up, that tires your heart out. Yeah. Uh, and so I always used to wonder that with them, but it sounds like not it, not really. No, when like I said, when they're little, it scares them. Um, and they can lock up and they panic a little bit and they get up and they're kind of breathing heavy. And you can tell that they didn't enjoy it. But the adults, <laughs> one of my favorite stories is this one. They were running down for feeding time. Oh, boy, me, corn. And one of them jumped up on the mineral feeder, but it was slick. And she slid, fainted landed on the other side and just sighed. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Fine. (laughs) Well, I imagine it would be like, if you you ever had sleep paralysis? I never have. I hear stories, though. I've had sleep paralysis twice ever, and it is extremely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's just a real bad, like, it's real awful Mm -hmm. to not, to, to be telling your body to do something and your body going, Nope, I disagree for no apparent reason. <laughs> but if it happened every morning, yeah, it, it would just be, you'd just be like, all right, sleep, I'll, I'll wait five minutes, and yeah. then oh, it will be time to go. Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. get very much used to it. And you, know, you feel bad for them when they fall onto something, like on a brick or something yeah. like that, on gravels, mm-hmm. or like just face plant. My buck, he was running, and one of the horses ran up behind him, and he was like, whoa, the horse. And he just pfft, right into the dirt. And he put mud all over his face. And he got up and was like, oh, man. <laughs> Wish that hadn't happened. <laughs> but he was fine. Just maybe. tell me the horse didn't see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to imagine. I mean, goats are also kind of built for crashing into things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like so. the all-terrain animals. Oh, yeah. They're four low constantly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like, I have to imagine that falling, especially and your, your goats are not big. You no, know, they're like no. a couple feet tall. Yeah, that was sixty-five to one hundred pounds max. Yeah. So falling over onto something hard is both not much of a fall, right. and also you're a goat. You're yeah. kind of built to get hit by another goat. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, like when you are. watch a little kid wipe out. It's like yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. If we don't make a big deal out of it, they'll be fine. Yeah, you <laughs> fell fifty centimeters. <laughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs> Did she get up? Is she fine? Yeah, she's yeah. fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has all been fascinating. I'm sure that we could, here's the thing that Mike doesn't know, but that we know, is that we could sit here with you and get you to talk about fainting goats. I'm sure until sleep took us all. Easily. <laughs> this could be hours and hours, but that is not our tradition. 
<laughs> for the podcast. Fine. Maybe we'll bring you back to talk about goats and stuff for some some project sometime in the future. Ooh, if you ever do an episode of Myotritis, come on in. Okay. I mean, we haven't done a goats episode. Yeah. In fact, uh, I'm not entirely sure we've ever done an Artiodactyls episode. <gasps> we did whales. Yeah. We did cetaceans. But I that might no. I think that's the only Artiodactyl we've ever done. We did we did horses. Yes. Right. Uh, which I guess those are the two ungulate episodes. Is that? I think that's it. Unless I'm forgetting something. So which we're is, not ungulate people. <laughs> we are. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, we are beholden to the list. Yeah. And it's interesting because the request list is very biased in that regard. Hmm. Like, yes, we've got, you know, we do a lot of episodes of XYZ, mm-hmm. but like we had the, the list of mammal requests, for example, is roughly the same length as the list of dinosaur requests. Cause yeah, people request the things they want to hear about. So right. we haven't gotten, that's not to say we have none. There are requests for already at Eccles. Yes. But yeah, so as uh, not, not yet. We'll see. Okay. We'll keep you up to date. You're ready. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Mike, thank you again for your support. Thank you again for requesting this. This was a fun opportunity for us. We didn't have to do anything. We just brought Laura over and <laughs> yeah, we learned, learned a ton. <laughs> learned a whole bunch of stuff. We hope you have also learned a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and we hope you'll continue to listen and support us into the future. And with that... Uh, I guess we're we're about done. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mike. Great topic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. See ya. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Andreas, and welcome to your very own patron mini-episode. Hello! Thank you so much for your support. It is our pleasure to bring you this special edition of a little bit of us talking about cool stuff (laughs) uh, based on your personal request. Yes, thank you so much. So as you know, the request you made was for a mini-episode about human parasites, specifically scabies delightful wait uh, just uh, what a what a glorious happy little topic although i will say cool choice mm-hmm. just because really uh parasites of course big broad topic and scabies specifically means that we get to talk a little bit about arachnids yeah yeah we do about a mite a specific kind of mite and this is interesting for me because i for all of my appreciation of arachnids and things i don't know very much about arachnids i know decent amounts about like the arachnids we think of when we say arachnids yeah spiders yeah spiders i know less but still enough about scorpions because i I like arthropods so i like learning about and but then you get the mites and every single time i'm like oh yes those and technically too i guess yeah. And I, I, yeah, so I don't know a lot about mites. I always think, I, I know logically that there are many, 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 many species of mites. Oh yeah, they're ridiculous. But I don't think of it that way. Well, uh, in my head, they're categorized as mites. Yeah. And then that's as far as I typically get. I think the, the thing that makes mites so crazy is that they cover like the micro ecosystem food web of like you have parasites like scabies, mm-hmm. the, sca- the, the itch mite. Is what I saw it called. Yeah, and there's even it, it Sarcoptes scabii. Yeah, is, as I've seen it d- d- described online. Yep, yep. You have like parasitic ones, and then you have ones that just like 
live in your scalp and eat your dead skin or right, like like detritivores. It, yeah, like live in your bed. Like I've heard like the weight of our pillows increases throughout <laughs> our life because of all the mites that live in it. Yeah, I've heard that. Um gross. Yep, yep. Uh it's your bed buddies. And then you have like predatory ones that eat other mites. Mm-hmm. And so like they, they they hit every category and they're everywhere. Like yeah. is there an ecosystem? There are mites for it. Is there an animal? There are mites for it. Yeah. And it's just it it's 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 like water bears. It's like tardigrades. It's just <laughs> they're everywhere and it gets it's kind of easy to forget that yeah, there's probably a mite for that. Yeah. Well, and they're they're extremely successful. Mm-hmm. Like this makes them one of those kinds of animals that is very successful, very good at what it does, but doesn't often come to mind because A, they're so minuscule and you don't see them. Yeah. And B, because what they do isn't pleasant to think about much of the time. I was about to say, like, typically you just don't notice them, even when they're doing something that's gross, like eating our dead skin that we've shed all around our yeah, room. Just our little micro janitors. Yeah, like, that's super gross, but you don't notice it. It's not like... Yeah. It's not like your room starts to smell like mites because of all the mite farts. Or does it? That, right? Is that just what rooms <laughs> smell like and we don't realize? But then you get ones like parasitic that the only reason we notice them is because of the symptoms of them living on or in us. I did a quick Googling for scabies mites just to see what I could mm-hmm. learn for myself. I learned that there is the human itch mite, human mm. scabies, is specific to us, but there are other scabies mites. Yes, I saw that. That go after, pet, you know, dogs and cats and other animals. Uh, evidently, the ones for dogs and cats is one of the causes of mange. Oh, interesting. Is one, one of the, at least one of the sources I saw mentioned that. I think on us, it's mostly rashes and crusty skin. The pictures I saw, and I think one thing even described it, they look like really irritated pimples and dry skin mm-hmm. like it makes these i don't know if you'd call them welts but they're like active bumps on at uh, least on some of the galls. pictures like yeah yeah very gall like <laughs> well i learned in my searching that there is a severe form of scabies that oh. you'll specifically see uh, if i believe it said in people who are immunocompromised gotcha or have some other condition and the way that that was described is that they have particularly gross skin rashes mm-hmm, and crusty mm-hmm. skin and the way that i think this was the cdc website i was looking at the way they described it was thick crusts of skin containing lots of mites and eggs <laughs> like, yep particularly rich in these mites and eggs and i i was reading it and i thought ooh gross and then the next part said uh, this also makes it extremely contagious yeah which is even more gross yeah you've just got little pods of them waiting to spread to the person you shake hands with. Well, what it, what it does is it makes you the unwilling mothership for these, <laughs> for these mites. Gross. <laughs> well, and, uh, I, I glanced at the, the Wikipedia page for it, uh, just to get an idea. And the picture for, I don't remember if it was the first picture or the second picture, but for the, the scabies mite page had a picture of, the uh, an affected skin area and it had like a circle of dry skin and it was like the dry skin is because of the mites being there but the uh, a lot of the redness and flaking is because of scratching like so this is from the person scratching the spot but then it had a uh uh, in the description it said and then you can see the path of the mite burrowing because that's evidently what causes it is they are 
burrowing under the skin. Yeah, I read a very brief description that just described it as a serpentine burrow. Yes, that's what like it looked like. A little Characteristically S. serpentine burrow, which... It's, this makes them very itty-bitty versions of the scarab beetles from The Mummy. Yeah. Just burrowing under your skin, except these are laying eggs while they do it. Yeah. Like, from what I understood, in the burrow as they go, it's just... Yep. Which just, (laughs) oh, delightful. Uh, Speaking of parasite specialization, one of the interesting things that I saw uh, on that website was that they are... We think about parasites being specialized to their hosts. Yes. And absolutely it makes sense to me when it's something like an animal that lives inside you. Yeah, like it's a very specific environment. This is the only place you can be. Well, apparently these mites are so specialized to living in our skin that they can survive one to two months, reportedly, on us, but no more than a couple of days not on a person. Wow. But there was a whole section on the CDC website that was basically, you know, how do I deal with them if I discover that I have them? And there were a bunch of questions like, how do I get them off my clothes? How do I get them if they're on the carpet? Mm -hmm. And the website was like, well, wait two or three days. Yep. And they'll just die. Yeah, go to a hotel or something. Yeah, they can't survive Mm -hmm. off of a person, which is extreme specialization in a way that I don't typically think of for ectoparasites. Although I guess if you're in the skin? Well, yeah, this is one of those weird ones where you start ecto, but then you become an endo. Yeah. Like, it's you you actively burrow into us, and so you... This would be maybe close to the the mesoparasites that i found a mention of where you're on you're at the barrier between indo and ecto (laughs) (laughs) yeah one it's it's kind of crazy uh just because it it means that when they transition from person to person that's like going to space for them like right if they don't get off of us onto you quickly and then into you quickly that they're dead yeah, like they can't survive out there. They they their their heads get all blown up and they explode inside their spacesuit. Yes, is that like they they have a couple of days <laughs> to transition hosts and then that's really it. Well, I'd also I'd imagine that part of it is food mm-hmm. that you need to eat, but then also I know that they're physically specialized. Yeah, they've got little suckers for latching on, and they're obviously burrowing and making a little habitat for themselves. I assume they, I imagine they don't do very well trying to move across a carpet. Yeah, well, it's like trying to watch, uh, well, uh, I watched a video about tardigrades that just are on my mind because I made the joke about them. Um, and talking about how a lot of the ones that have claws, when you look at them under a microscope, they look fumbly because they're in a watery microscope. They don't have any plant material to climb on. But like, yeah. if they're on a piece of plant, they just crawl. You know, they just walk around. But then when you put them, you know, in, in a drop of water and look at them, they're flailing because they have nothing to grab onto and they can't cling to the glass. That makes sense. So that's that's why they you, every video you see is just them walking in circles is because yeah. they can't walk on glass. But if there's plant, yeah, they just walk. Okay. So I assume that's what it's like for, well, like when I've seen picture of lice and it's mm-hmm. like, how do you, your, all of your feet are just little hooks and they're all super tiny and they don't, they're all way too far up on your body. Like... <laughs> How could you maneuver? So, yeah, because you're made to maneuver in hair and nowhere else. Yeah. 
Like that that's you are extremely. You're you're the uh, the equivalent of a tree sloth. Yes, yes. <laughs> for a, a jungle of hair. <laughs> this, I would love if trees feel that way about sloths. God. It's like, do you have sloths? Stay away. Yeah, oh, <laughs> Don't no, come over I here. Him. I got I got too close to that pine. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> when my kid brought him home. There are definitely no tree sloths living in pine trees. <laughs> that was the first tree that came right. to my mind, but I'm no. That would be a real they, bad tree for them. No, they don't overlap. <laughs> I think another thing that's weird about the idea of this kind of parasitic mite is that it does go under the skin. Like, uh, things like lice, things like ticks... Uh, you know, those other kinds of legged external parasites make sense. It's like, yeah, you climb on me and then you feed on me. Right. You know, it's, it's, you're a mosquito, but less, less refined. In your <laughs> you, being. Don't, you don't move around very yeah. much. Yeah. You, you're not, you're less mobile is what I meant to say. Uh, but then you get something like this, which, I mean, it's a very simplistic looking mite. It doesn't have like, I couldn't see a face when I saw a picture of one, mm-hmm. but you still have legs and you still got a little squatty arachnid body and you like you're still an arthropod right you still look the part but yet you're burrowing under the skin yeah so something's walking around inside you Mm -hmm. that's the part that i feel is so alien about it well and it, it it really drives home that notion of and we've talked about this in certain episodes and it's always something that fascinates me that each of our bodies is a diversity of habitats Mm mm-hmm that there are organisms, often bacteria and things like that, that we are the habitat that they are specialized to live in. The climate within our bodies, the conditions of light and acidity, we are the environment. We that are their ecosystem. Adapted to. And then you think about internal parasites. I It had never really occurred to me that there would be animals that live in our skin like moles live in the That's crust. That's what I was, I was just thinking about. Yeah. This is a skin mole. It's a skin mole, which is both extremely cool and real gross. <laughs> I mean, um, if they were in there eating all the other worms, I'd be more okay with it. That's true, like a mole. If they were doing the mole job. I guess this is more like an earthworm. Yeah. Like yeah. what you're actually eating is the material. Yep. And it's, uh, I'm using that. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> The mites actually uh, help recycle the skin so that well, the hairs can grow better. Yeah, it, it's aeration. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want air in there. <laughs> like it lets your roots breathe. The, um, <laughs> I, I, I can't, this whole discussion, I can't decide if the idea of the scabies mite behavior is better or worse than a botfly. It's definitely, at least they're not moving. Yeah, like, I feel like, at least from the pictures I saw, scabies... It feels maybe more invasive, but it's it feels less gross. But like I've seen a botfly wound, like on a kitten, mm. and they're gooey and uh. juicy, and like the skin around it become was all leathery and hairless as the botfly was like maintaining its home. And every now and then it would go <laughs> as the breather tube came out among the juice. You know what I think? Like it, it's. It, Mm. botflies are also visible yep like you see when there's a botfly and they grow in there well and there's something about seeing being able to see something in you partway in you it's like the horror movies when a a person like looks in their mirror and see something move across their eye it's like yeah i don't i might i know i probably have something but i don't want to look at it that's a fair point (laughs) what we need are mites 
specialized to burrow into the skin and get out the bot flies. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. That's what we need. Specially bred <laughs> scabies mites. <laughs> get rid of those flies. Surely nothing could go wrong. Well, I think another thing that's so weird about uh, the idea of a mite going internally is like when I see a, a tapeworm, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, of course that thing lives in an intestine. Like where else would it function? Right. You know, it doesn't have any... It doesn't look like it could be mobile anywhere else. It doesn't right. look like it's not it, crawling. It's not swimming. No, like that. Of course, that thing lives inside something. Or like when I see a roundworm or so, stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you look like you were meant to be inside a body. Right. But then this you see, and it's like, yeah, you're not supposed to go inside bodies. You're supposed to like crawl around surfaces or something. Well, it makes me think because we are very familiar with the fact that among vertebrate animals. There are certain features you get in, like, the skull and the Mm -hmm. front arms associated with digging. (laughs) I wonder if... I don't know enough about these mites to know. Yeah. I wonder if a bug person would be able to say, yeah, no, you see this shape of the front legs? That's for digging through skin. Yeah. Yeah. Do they have telltale features of being a digger? (laughs) I don't know. Creepy. Well, Andreas, thank you so much for suggesting this just phenomenal. I'm glad (laughs) that it's after dinner time that we are recording this episode. (laughs) Very cool topic. We've talked about, as of this recording, we've done a Parasites episode, Mm -hmm. uh, but we haven't talked about arachnids. No, we haven't. Uh, So there is certainly opportunity in the future for us to revisit the subject of mites and other ectoparasites. (laughs) And all the places that they are. (laughs) well thank you again we hope you've enjoyed your mini episode and we hope that you'll keep supporting us thank you so much for the support you've given us so far stay tuned for more thank you so much bye thanks for listening to the common descent podcast You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.